thank you very much indeed for that clear reading. Uh, well, at the beginning of our service, Michael mentioned the programme that's going on here during uh, Easter week. Uh, later today, or perhaps tomorrow, we'll be sending you a WhatsApp uh, with well, not a WhatsApp advert with all the different activities that are going on here during Easter week. And you can use that to send it on to friends, neighbours, uh, to invite them to come and join us, perhaps particularly on that midweek Wednesday evening. Uh, I doubt very much whether uh, every church will be having something on a Wednesday night, and it would be lovely to have them come and join us on that Wednesday evening of Easter week. So look out for that WhatsApp message. And now let's have our Bibles open at the passage that Faye read so beautifully for us, and uh, I'm going to lead us in prayer. Well, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness that the men and women of God may be thoroughly trained and equipped for every good work. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would do its work in us this morning. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Corruption, uh, COVID-19, climate change, uh, violent crime, load shedding, poverty, student protests just some of the things that we read about every day in the news. At times, the, the barrage of bad news can seem to be almost overwhelming. If we're not careful, these things can appear to us to be the only reality. Of course, they're not the only reality, and I know that you know that. Uh, but the title of our message this morning is Chaos, Corruption and Christ. Because from these verses in Mark, uh, I want to remind you for those times when you might forget it, that behind all of the difficulties and all of the pressures and all of the sadness, there is a far, far greater reality. And uh, if you'll just stay with me for the next few minutes... I hope you'll see that there are things in this passage to interest you, not just on Sunday morning, but to sustain you from Monday through Saturday. Because if Jesus can speak at his arrest, which is so very chaotic, and say something that changes everything, and if Jesus can speak at his trial which is corrupt, and say something which changes everything, then you and I ought to be able to borrow from what Jesus says and take it with us into this coming week. R.C. Sproul says in one of his books, quote, I doubt if there's been another period in all of Christian history when Christians have been so ineffective in shaping their culture. On Sunday we say the creed, but on Monday we're fatalists, 
and we separate our Christian life from the rest of life. We therefore hold contradictory beliefs which become confusing, inconsistent, incoherent and chaotic. End quote. So friends, we I think need to learn from Jesus in these verses in Mark 14. These two scenes could hardly be worse than they are, could they? But Jesus says something which changes everything. So, in verses 43 to 52, you'll notice Jesus is arrested, and right in the middle of the chaos, he says something sensational. Then in verses 53 to 65, he's on trial, and again he says something sensational. So there's a pattern in these verses. Arrest, statement, trial, statement. And because we face all kinds of different messy situations, we need to know how to think and what to say. Now, I don't know what the specific situations are for you this morning, but it is important, isn't it, for us to remember that whatever those situations are, they're only symptoms of a far, far more serious disease, which is universal hostility to Jesus Christ. At the very centre of all our problems in the world is opposition to the authority of Jesus. And where he is attacked and opposed, things unravel. And where Jesus is honoured and worshipped, well, things usually fall into place. I'm not saying, by the way, that Christians will always have an easy life. I'm not saying that. But attacking and opposing Jesus always, without exception, brings great disorder. So in Mark 14 we're going to think about two things this morning. First, we're going to think about chaos and the word of the Lord and then we're going to think about corruption and the day of the Lord. So firstly then, chaos and the word of the Lord, verses 43 to 52. Now, over the last two Sundays, we've seen Jesus speak about his death at the supper, the last supper, and then agree to his death in the garden. That was last week. And now, in verse 43, we've got the details surrounding Jesus' arrest. And on the surface, I'm sure you'll agree, it all looks terrible. First, uh, we see Judas leading the mob. Please notice that Mark deliberately describes him as one of the twelve. Why? Well, he's emphasising that nothing hurts more than to be betrayed by someone who's been a friend for such a long time and received so much from you. It's just plain wrong that Judas should be the one leading the arresting party. Second, there's the crowd, and the crowd, you'll notice, are coming with swords and clubs. Nothing could be more unnecessary than a crowd coming for Jesus with swords and clubs. 
And you'll see that they've been sent by the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Which means the crowd have been sent by the clergy. So in our culture that would be the bishops, the lecturers at Bible College, and elders in the church. These are the people behind the arrest of Jesus. The religious world could hardly be more upside down. And Judas has a signal, and the signal is going to be this famous kiss. And uh, in verse 45, Judas kisses Jesus enthusiastically. Uh, Our English translation, I think, hides the sense of the original, which is that Judas comes and he, he embraces Jesus. This is the embrace that you would give to your best friend. And Judas calls him rabbi or teacher, which of course is highly ironic. And so they seize Jesus and in all of the chaos, somebody swings a sword, slicing off the ear of the high priest's servant. So that's, that's Mark's account of the arrest of Jesus. And it's interesting to note that Mark doesn't tell us some of the things the other Gospel writers include in their record. For example, uh, Matthew tells us that as Jesus was being arrested, he told the man with the sword, put your sword away, because if I wanted to, I could call on 12 legions of angels and completely take over this situation. It'd be dead easy for me to do that. And Mark also doesn't tell us what Luke says in his account, which is that no sooner has this poor man had his ear sliced off than Jesus leans forward and heals him. So, at the very moment when Jesus is being arrested, there's a wonderful, wonderful miracle of compassion and divine power. And Mark also doesn't tell us what John says in his account, which is that Jesus actually went out to meet the crowd, the mob, as they were coming towards him. And he says to them, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replies, I am, which as every serious Bible reader knows is the Old Testament name for God. And the crowd falls to the ground. They're completely overwhelmed by standing in the presence of revealed deity. And Jesus says, let these people go because I'm the one you want. Now, those are all tremendous details, aren't they? And the question you and I have to ask ourselves as thoughtful Bible readers is why does Mark exclude them? And the answer is, I think, because Mark is emphasising two things in particular. These these are the things Mark wants us to focus on. The first was that the whole thing was chaotic. It happened in the dark, at night. It was hypocritical. Look at Judas. It was crafty. It was tragic. It was violent. And at the same time, Jesus speaks. And what Jesus says doesn't get him out of the trouble, 
but it does put the trouble in the context of God's unstoppable plan. And you and I need to borrow these words of the Lord Jesus if you and I are going to speak effectively into the chaos all around us. So look at verses 48 and 49. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. So on the one hand, Jesus exposes their ignorance. They've clearly got absolutely no idea who he is or what he's come to do. He's the Prince of Peace. And they come to arrest him with swords and clubs. And then Jesus makes this very humbling statement. He says, look, I was teaching every day in the temple. Why didn't you arrest me then? And of course they didn't because it was daylight and there was a large crowd and they were too scared to do it. But the really striking thing that Jesus says here is that the scriptures must be fulfilled. And I, as I read that, I think it's, it's almost as if as the crowd is getting closer, Jesus is mentally pulling out the script and he's saying to them, ah yes, here it is, yes, enter the crowd, yes, you've arrived exactly on time, the scriptures have got to be fulfilled and all of your plotting and scheming fits perfectly inside the plan of God. So the real reason I'm going to be crucified is because scripture says so. And if you went back to your Old Testament and you read Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, which Alice read earlier, or any of the other passages that speak about this, you would see that what I'm saying is absolutely true. God has a plan and it embraces everything, including what you're doing right now, says Jesus to the crowd. So can you see that we mustn't miss the significance of these words of Jesus as he's being arrested? I don't think it's very difficult for us to find people who've got absolutely no place at all for Jesus Christ in their thinking. But you and I need to remember that somehow they still fit in the plan of Christ. And it may be that in a day or a week or a month they're going to turn to Christ because they're not outside his plan. Equally, I don't think it's difficult for us to find people who believe there is a plan, which is why you sometimes hear people say something like this, that um, everything happens for a reason. And what Jesus is saying is that the reason is the script. And the script has been revealed... None of this is outside God's plan. And in the middle of his arrest, Jesus says that plan has been revealed to the world. Because when we read the scriptures, we discover what God's big plan for the world really is. Now, it won't give you every little detail. It won't explain every single setback. But it will give you all the big principles and God's big purpose for the whole world. So friends, do you see that at a time of tremendous chaos, Jesus isn't the slightest bit phased 
Instead, he announces that the plan of God is being fulfilled. That means you and I need to put away our unbelief between Monday and Friday and we need to be able to say to people that there is a plan and there is a script and that it's been revealed, it's published, it's public, it's in the open. Anybody can read it. Of course, most people don't. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, I think captures the idea here perfectly. This is what he says. The day will come when you will be astonished that there was order in your life when you thought it was all confusion. You will be astonished that there was love and you thought it was unkindness. There was gentleness and you thought it was severity. There was wisdom when you were wicked enough to question God's goodness. Believer, the events of history march as a victorious legion under a skillful leader. Do not think that we could order our affairs in better style. Our good, our ill, our joy and our grief keep their place. They don't push one another out. Everything marches in its own column. If you didn't get all of that, let me give you a more sentimental illustration. Imagine a tapestry, a mother trying to embroider a picture. And she says to her small son, I'm going to do the picture with all of these coloured threads. And the boy says, well, I like the yellow, uh, I like the red, I like the blue, and I like the green, I don't like the black. And the mother says, okay, well, come back when I've finished and tell me what you think. And so, a few days later, uh, the picture is finished, and the boy comes back. And the picture's got a number of people in it, it's a beautiful picture, but the people don't have eyes. And the little boy says, but mother, they can't see. You've got to put some eyes in. And so she sews in the black thread. And the point is, you see, that when God sews the black things, the hard things, the dark things, into the tapestry of our lives, that is often what enables people to see reality for the first time. And here Jesus is speaking the word of God amidst the chaos of the world and it puts the chaos into perspective. Now, how do you think Mark might uh, go and illustrate the power of the word at work in the world? Can I suggest to you that he does it in verses 50 to 52? in this rather extraordinary episode of the young man being seized and his robe or his garment being taken away. And you read those verses and you think to yourself, well, why are they here? 
One suggestion is that Mark's trying to show us how frightened people were, that they were in the chaos, actually prepared to run away even when their clothing had been taken. Well, maybe, maybe, I don't know. But you need to know that Mark is the only gospel writer to record this little episode. Most scholars think the young man is Mark himself. That Mark is writing himself into the story saying, look, I was one of those who ran away. I don't deserve to be named, but I want to say in in, in a modest and, and perhaps rather humbling way, I was one of the people who ran. But think about it. Mark has obviously been changed because he's writing the Gospel. He's obviously been transformed. So whatever he did by running and hiding, he's now a new person. How has he changed? Well, he heard the Word of God and he believed it. Because you see, when you hear the Word of God and you take it in, you're not just taking in information. You're taking in the life of God. So, on another occasion, that's why Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. I wonder if anyone listening this morning thinks that the Christian life means that you live your life best you can here and now and you hope one day that you might be accepted by God. Well, if that's you, you need to know that Christianity actually says precisely the opposite. Christianity says that God accepts you at the moment you turn to Jesus. The moment you surrender to him, God accepts you. And so you live your Christian life in the knowledge you've been accepted by God. So in the chaos of the garden and in the chaos of the world, Jesus says, there's a script, there's a plan, the plan is the word of God. And every now and again, perhaps particularly in the lead up to Easter, you and I need to say to people, yes, things may be really difficult, they might be terrible at the moment, but there is a plan, and it's been revealed, and it's not secret, it's out in the open, it's in the public domain, the answers you're looking for are in God's word. And the person who hears that and believes it becomes a brand new person. And that's what Mark is telling us about himself. So that's the first thing this morning. Chaos and the word of the Lord. Secondly, corruption and the day of the Lord. So this is where we come to the trial. It's the most corrupt trial the world has ever seen. But in the middle of it, Jesus says something wonderful. In verses 53 and 54, they take Jesus to the courtyard of the high priest. And this week I was interested to discover that there's a a church on the site of this little courtyard. It's there today. Uh, It's called St Peter's. 
and uh, the suburb where it's located is called in the local language Gallicantu, which means cockcrow. So still today, there is a site, a piece of real estate, that commemorates the trial of Jesus and Peter's denial. Now, every little detail about the trial is corrupt, and I wonder if you know this. First, it was taking place at night, which was illegal. Second, it's all happening in one sitting, when the law of God said it should happen in two sittings. Third, the numbers of senior clergy are insufficient for a proper Sanhedrin. And fourth, if you were charging someone with blasphemy, you had to demonstrate and prove they had cursed God and Jesus never did. But if you look at verse 55 in your Bible, you'll see they're not remotely interested in the truth. They're looking for grounds to kill Jesus. So their motives are entirely corrupt from the start. I don't know whether you've ever been in a situation where everything and everyone is against you, but if you have, you'll know that there's no point in looking for logic or for reason or integrity or justice. This trial is the supreme example of that. Then you'll notice there are some false witnesses contradicting one another in the text. And in verse 58, they actually succeed in misquoting Jesus by saying that he planned to destroy the temple. Jesus never said he planned to destroy the temple. What he actually said in John chapter 2 was, if you destroy this temple, meaning my physical body, the place where God and man meet, I will raise it in three days. But at this ridiculous trial, they turn all of that around and said, Jesus said he would destroy the temple, meaning the building. But he never did. It's a lie. Well, I guess South Africans are painfully familiar with corruption. We seem to have had more than our fair share, don't we? And Jesus, of course, wasn't the first person, and I dare say he won't be the last, to have an unfair trial. But the opposition to Jesus is the most corrupt the world has ever seen. Because if you think about it, this is the maker of the world being attacked by the members of the world. That's why this is the supreme injustice and that's why this passage is worthy of our intelligent understanding. Because this attack on Jesus at his trial is the spiritual cancer from which all corruption flows. And you'll notice, I hope, that Jesus is silent just as we're told that he would be in Isaiah 53 when God said he would be silent. And that really ticks off the high priest. He says, aren't you going to answer? Jesus refuses. And then the high priest asks this massive question in verse 61. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? 
Are you the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of God? And Jesus says, I am. There are many people still today who say that Jesus never actually claimed to be the Messiah, that this was just something that the church has dreamed up. But when you come back, as we're doing this morning, to the first Gospel to be written, based on the eyewitness testimony of the people who were there and saw what happened, well, we find Jesus saying quite clearly, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. Please notice that all of the little phrases in verse 62 are loaded We've already seen that the phrase I am is the personal name of God. Then in uh, verse 62, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which is the, the character in Daniel chapter 7, who's given all authority by Almighty God over the entire universe. Then Jesus says that he's going to be seated at God's right hand, which according to Psalm 2 is the seat of God's king. And then Jesus says he's going to come on the clouds of heaven. So, what Jesus is saying to his enemies is this. You might think that you've got me on trial. But when I return, coming on the clouds of heaven, I'm going to put you on trial. You might think you're deciding my future, but I'm going to be deciding your future. So, can you see that Jesus is saying something here which changes everything? In the middle of the chaos in the garden, he says there's a plan, this is all part of the plan, it's in the scriptures, nothing is outside God's control, and then in this very corrupt trial, Jesus says, a day's coming when everything's going to be put right. I'm coming back. And when I do, I will establish what is right and I will put down and deal with everything that's wrong. That's a huge claim, isn't it? But of course Jesus has the perfect credentials to make it. And when Jesus makes this claim to be the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, the high priest doesn't say, oh, okay, well perhaps we'd better take a recess and think about this, because if that's true it would be really serious. Instead what he does is he, he tears his clothes as if to announce ahead of time, this is blasphemy. I've been wondering whether the the two references to clothing in our passage have been put there deliberately to make us think. I wonder about that. So when Jesus was in the garden and he made his statement about the scriptures, there was a detail, wasn't there, about clothing because the man who deserted Jesus and recorded his failure is now writing the gospel and he's obviously been changed and converted. There was a detail about clothing there. And now at the trial, as Jesus makes his second comment, we get another little detail about clothing. 
But on this occasion, the clothes belong to a man who's not changing and he's not going to change. And uh, it's only the day when the Son of Man returns that he's going to put these things right. So let's try and draw all this together. In the garden, Jesus says, there is a script, there is a plan, you can read it and you can know how to be saved. And in the courtroom, Jesus says, there's a day coming when everything's going to be put right. And that is Mark's message to us in this passage this morning. God's word has an answer for chaos. It's not a secret word. It's been revealed. Anybody can read it. And if you hear it and believe it, you can be transformed just as Mark himself was. And there's a day coming when Jesus is going to deal justly with all of the corruption in our world. I know perfectly well it's a day that most people aren't thinking about, they don't even take it seriously. But it is coming, and when it does, everything will be put right. And what that day will mean for you, then, depends on what you do with his word now. Let's pray. Well, our gracious God, we thank you for this window into the authority, the power, the wisdom and the love of Jesus. We thank you for this reminder that everything is under your control. And we pray that as your representatives in the world, you would give us some of the clarity and courage of the Lord Jesus amidst all the chaos and all the corruption of our world today so that we might tell people boldly that there is a plan and also that there is a day coming when everything will be put right. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.